came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with the wise were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind can, has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. In Matthew 5, 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lindsay. Good morning again, everybody. How's it going? Well, it's good to be back with you this Sunday. Um, I hope you all had a great weekend last weekend. Um, And as many of you know, I was chaperoning the youth winter ski retreat last weekend. And uh, I have a bit of an announcement to make. Some of your children are terrible. (laughs) Listen, there are a lot of theological debates about the precise nature of hell. It... (laughs) Is it a real place or a spiritual state of being? Listen, all those complex questions, I don't know how to adjudicate them. I'm not intelligent enough. But if it's a real place, middle school boys' cabin feels like a strong possibility. 
You just spend eternity being brutally exhausted, but never actually able to sleep because children keep farting or making noise until 1 a.m. or randomly spraying their deodorant in the middle of the night, resulting in hour-long coughing fits. Why? Who knows? Who needs deodorant at 2 a.m.? I don't know, but somebody did apparently. Now, by the way, side note, I noticed some families might still be sleeping it off from last weekend. There's a few not here. Now, despite the waking nightmare that was my Friday night last week, it actually turned out to be a really great weekend. Saturday night, in fact, they were all so exhausted from skiing that they were all out by 11 p.m., so it was much better. And honestly, I was super impressed with how all of the kids, for the most part, really engaged with the teachings that Greg did, with the small group times that he broke us out into, and even the journaling. I mean, what teenager wants to journal? But I mean, when he asked them to write their thoughts down and pause and be quiet and journal, they all did it, and it was really, really cool to see. But for me, one of the big highlights of the weekend, for sure, was the actual skiing on Saturday. Going into last weekend, I had been skiing a grand total of one time in my whole life, and let's just say it didn't go great. It was kind of a nightmare. It was apparently icy. I don't know, I've been skiing one time, so I don't know a whole lot about how conditions affect skiing, but apparently it's not good to ski when it's very icy out. And I had, I would have been given no instruction whatsoever, except my dad, who's not known for his patience, going, do what I'm doing, do what I'm doing, which is the least helpful thing in the whole wide world. And I basically just spent multiple hours falling pretty epically, most of the time because I was afraid if I didn't just bail out, I was probably going to kill a small child as I plummeted down the mountain. But this time proved to be ultimately a lot more fun and a lot more successful. This time, shocker, we actually took the introductory skiing lesson. And shocker, it was helpful with a ski instructor actually taking about an hour to explain some important ideas and concepts to us and then kind of walking us through in baby steps the movements and helping us just to, with little tiny inch by inch steps, get a little bit better at what we're, we were doing. There's, you know, the little bunny slope kind of down at the bottom of the mountain and we skied that very slowly and there's like a little conveyor belt that you ski down and you hop on the conveyor belt and it brings you up and you just keep going as many times as you can. And so we got a little better and every time you go a little bit faster and a little bit farther and each time you get a little bit of a better feel for the, for the skis and how to snow plow or pizza slice or whatever thing they use and how to turn a little bit. And then I would just kind of walk a little higher up the base of the mountain and a little higher and a little higher, giving it a shot. And then eventually I just decided to go for it, to ride up the lift up to the mountain and ski down the whole big boy hill. And truth is, I probably wasn't ready for it, but it was like, you know what? You just got to go for it. And I ultimately went down four times and I fell a bunch. But each time, I got a little bit better and a little bit better. The first time down, I fell maybe three or four times. The second time down, I fell only two or three times. The third time down, I fell only once. And then finally, on our last pass of the day, meeting my goal for the day, 
I skied all the way down without falling a single time. I felt proud of myself. When, don't clap for that. Don't patronize me. <laughs> when, when I was skiing last weekend, though, it reminded me of something that actually feels really relevant today with our texts. It's that there's, there's really two kinds of knowledge in this world. I mean, there's really, there's more, but, but I think you could divide it into two categories. There's intellectual knowledge, and for lack of a better term, incarnational knowledge, right? There's a kind of knowing that you know in your head, ideas, concepts, abstract principles. But then there's another kind of knowing that exists more in your body. It's an experiential kind of knowledge, a, a kinesthetic knowledge, right? You know how this movement feels in your legs and in your body and how much pressure you need to apply on your left foot as you're digging it in to make sure you don't go too fast and how to slow down and how to turn. It's, it's a knowledge that you feel and embody far more than you think. Most knowledge begins by necessity at the intellectual level, right? I mean, you have to begin with some geometry and basic physics as we did in our skiing lesson. He explained conceptually first what we needed to do and how the skis worked and all of that and angles and all those sorts of things. But see, eventually that knowledge has to be absorbed into a bigger, deeper kind of knowledge. It has to become less theoretical and more tangible, or truth be told, it just isn't worth that much. And this kind of incarnational knowledge, it can be harder to articulate or to explain, but it's actually much more true and real and substantial. It finds expression in the real world, which just kind of makes it better and more interesting. It's something that's kind of experienced more than explained. And this is something that I actually learned time and time again in my athletic life before I was old and broken, which I was reminded of yesterday when we went out and played soccer. Very old and broken. But anyways, in my athletic life, I learned time and time again this idea that there's intellectual knowledge, but then there's incarnational knowledge, particularly as a football player or as a quarterback at that. I mean, football playbooks are notoriously dense. I know that sometimes we think of football players as just meatheads, but they have undergone quite an intellectual task to even get to the point where they can go on the field. I mean, the, the playbooks are that thick and there are formations and motions and routes and plays, and then there's endless variations on those, and then audibles you have to call in different situations and endless options that can get you there and get you through things, not to mention different protections and calls that you have to make or reads based on what the defense is doing. It's a lot of stuff. And you begin with this arduous intellectual task. But you also soon come to realize that even if you master that intellectual task, even if you memorize that thick playbook, you are still far from a great football player. Because that requires translating all of that intellectual knowledge into that incarnational knowledge. You have to learn how to actually play, how to take all the X's and O's on paper and figure out how to make them real in real life, 
And you have to learn all the subtle cues that tell you that this is going to work and that's not going to work. Or this little shoulder turn means this guy's going that way and he's not going that way. And all of those little subtle things. And the irony is sometimes the guys who aren't great at the paperwork are actually really, really good at just feeling it and making it come to life in real life. And the flip side is that some who are great in the meeting room just never quite figure out how to embody it in the constant imperfection and chaos that is the real game. Now, here's why I'm talking about this this morning. Because this, it seems to me, is essentially what all of our lectionary texts are about today. I mean, spanning the better part of a thousand years of history, these texts are all about the tension between intellectual knowledge and incarnational knowledge. Excarnational faith, to use a term we used a few weeks ago, faith that is abstract and conceptual and divorced from the real world, the messiness and the practicality of the real world, and incarnational faith, faith that's lived in the body, in community, in relationships, in the real world. Our first text from Isaiah 58 said this, for day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. Pay attention to the word commands that comes up over and over. What is the nature of God's commands? They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for laying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood, you see, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will appear quickly. Isaiah here is painting a picture of a people who like to perform religious acts and observances, but who don't want to allow their religion to transform their lives in the real world where they actually live each and every day. Isaiah here is, is contrasting the type of faith that lives in a nice, comfortable religious box that reduces faith to a little subset of life that can exist comfortably in a corner, a subset of rituals and practices, going to the temple or going to church, offering sacrifices, fasting, praying, maybe even Bible reading or something like that. He's contrasting that with a faith that permeates a whole life that impacts every thought and every decision, every action and every relationship, a faith that's expressed in friendship and acts of concern and compassion to the poor, justice for the suffering and the oppressed. Our psalm then essentially echoes this without the harsh prophetic critique, but still, 
It says this, blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. Commands, again. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. Good will, good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. This psalm, again, picks up these twin themes of shining light and practical faith. Religion lived out on the ground in the real world with dirt under your fingernails. It begins, again, with finding delight in God's commands. And so often when we think about God's commands, when we hear terms like the God's commands, which, we, again, we hear over and over in our text today, we think of restrictions in religious practices. But the psalmist here sees God's commands as something much more holistic. Delighting in God's commands means living a whole life of graciousness and compassion and righteousness, lending freely to those in need, conducting all your affairs in life, in business, in politics, in relationships, etc., with justice. It's a whole life, experiential, incarnational kind of thing. Then when we arrive at our New Testament texts, Paul, because he's writing a very different genre, right? He's writing a letter, not a poem. It sounds very different, and he comes at it from a very different angle, but he's expressing a similar idea. He says this, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, as he writes to the community in Corinth, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Corinth, like most places in the ancient Greco-Roman world, was a culture obsessed with wisdom in the abstract sense. The dualistic philosophies of most of the Greco-Roman world separated the physical from the spiritual. Wisdom in the abstract from the wisdom of the body and the creation and the world that we're in. But Paul subverts this whole worldview and ideology with a very different vision of wisdom. He tells them, I didn't come to you intentionally with wise words or rational arguments. I came to you with a practical demonstration of the Spirit's power, with the gospel of my life, something real and lived, with a way of life shaped by the cross and the Spirit. And that is the truest form of wisdom in Paul's eyes. In other words, in a world infatuated with left-brained wisdom, Paul says, I came here and first appealed to your right brain, to your emotions and intuitions. I began by making sure that you could see the gospel, lived and embodied, and then I started to try to tell you about it. In our text from Matthew, employing once again this imagery of light shining, Jesus expresses a similar idea once again. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We are called to be a light of the world, to shine in the darkness. But how? How do we do this? Not through religious observance or abstract doctrine simply, but through good deeds, love, and compassion. Something that people can see and experience. All of our texts seem to be highlighting this tension between intellectual faith and incarnational faith. Intellectual wisdom and incarnational wisdom. People, it seems, love to default to abstract intellectual faith because it's safe and it's comfortable. And it keeps our religion from getting too close and demanding too much from us. But we have always been called to an incarnation, even all the way back into the Old Testament. Now, with all of this in mind, I want to spend a few minutes talking about something we don't talk about much, or probably enough, these days. Evangelism. Somebody in here probably had like a Mufasa moment. Like, evangelism. <laughs> Some of you probably got twitchy just hearing that word spoken aloud because it calls to mind street preachers or handing out tracts or an awkward youth group outing where you were forced to basically make the in-person version of cold calls to someone with their eternal fate at stake. Apparently, I must say, I'm happy I skipped this whole part of the church experience when I was growing up. But despite negative associations and experiences, we have to remember that, one, evangelism is part of our calling as followers of Jesus. Making disciples of all nations is part of our job, something Jesus told us to do. But second, the word euangelion, means good news. It's supposed to be good and joyous, light, perhaps even fun. If it's full of guilt and shame, I'm sorry, you're just doing it wrong. And as Richard Rohr says all the time, the best critique of the bad is not to simply critique it or walk away, it's the practice of the better. And at the end of the day, this word evangelism is really just posing a question. How do we speak to people who think differently than us? How do we share what we think and what we believe with people who don't believe the same things, maybe aren't even predisposed to believing the same things? And in an increasingly divided and divisive world, this is a question we need to ask in every area of life. It doesn't just exist in some evangelistic corner. These are questions that we have to ask in politics, in relationships, in everything, every single day. How do we communicate with people that maybe don't think the exact thing that we do? Around 2,500 years ago, Plato articulated a metaphor that would shape human philosophy for millennia. And it's the metaphor of the horses and their rider or the chariot allegory. In this allegory or metaphor, which he uses to explain the nature of the human mind and the human psyche, 
One horse represents our emotions, our feelings, our longings, our our intuitions. And then the other horse, usually depicted by a darker horse, represents the passions, our more base instincts and desires. But above them both sits the rider holding the reins, the rider who represents our reason, our rational mind, whose job it is to control and tame and steer the horses wherever he wants them to go. In this conception of the human psyche, human reason stands atop the hierarchy, directing life from the top down. Humans are first and foremost thinking beings. As Rene Descartes would say nearly 2,000 years later, I think, therefore I am. Now there's, of course, some truth to this. Our thoughts are extremely important, and our rational, rational faculties are what sets us apart from the animal kingdom. You could even argue that this, these remarkable higher brain structures that we have are part of what it means to be created in the image of God. However, modern neuroscience and psychology have revealed how flawed and, quite frankly, shallow Plato's anthropology really was. In reality, we are much more feeling beings than thinking beings. We are much more experiential beings than intellectual beings. Jonathan Haidt, in his book, the, in his books The Righteous Mind and The Coddling of the American Mind, gives us a much more accurate and up-to-date allegory of the human psyche. He says that a much more accurate picture of how the human brain works is that of an elephant and its rider. In reality, our emotions and intuitions, our instinctive sub-rational brain, the elephant, is far more powerful than we once wanted to give it credit for. And more often than not, it is in charge of our decision-making, not the rational portion of our brain. And the rational brain, the rider, only comes in after the fact, usually, to justify decisions the elephant already made. The elephant, so to speak, has a mind of its own. And when it chooses to go somewhere, it's going to go there. And the rider is simply along for the ride. Now, the rider can attempt to and ultimately be successful in steering it, but only very, very slowly and through great effort and intention. In The Righteous Mind, Haight says this, people typically make moral judgments quickly, often immediately, as you can tell if you attend to your own reactions while you listen to your friends gossiping. We then make up reasons slowly and laboriously in order to justify our initial intuitive judgment. Our reasoning is like the tail wagged by the emotional or intuitive dog. A person's mind is divided into parts that sometimes conflict, like a small rider, controlled processing, including reasoning, sitting on top of a very large elephant, automatic processing, including all of our gut feelings and intuitions. Each of us may think that our rider is in charge. We think that we come to our views by carefully weighing the evidence on all sides. Yet, when we argue with others, it often seems clear to us that their elephant is in charge. And of course, he goes on to say that they think the same of us. 
The key to understanding politics, partisanship, and voting is to understand the elephant. It's very hard to change someone's mind by hitting them with arguments, logic, and data if their elephant doesn't like you and what you stand for. Coming at this from a slightly different angle, Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith says this in his book, Desiring the Kingdom. Human persons are not primarily, or for the most part, thinkers, or even believers. Instead, human persons are fundamentally and primordially lovers. We need to shift the center of gravity of human identity, as it were, down from the heady regions of mind closer to the central regions of our bodies, in particular, our cardia, our gut, or heart. One might say that in our everyday mundane being in the world, we don't lead with our head, so to speak. We lead with our heart and our hands. Coming back to this idea of evangelism, if all of this is true, what this means is that the best form of evangelism will appeal first and foremost to the heart, not the head, to their elephant, not their rider. And this is also the case for any disagreement or conflict that you might have in this world. If you want to persuade someone or win them over, or if you want to introduce someone to Jesus, you will do far more with the gospel of your life than a theological treatise. And wise people have actually always known this. St. Francis is credited as saying, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician, physicist, and theologian, which I love the fact that you used to be able to do all those things, once said, men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it might just be true. The cure for this is to first show that religion is not contrary to reason, but it's worthy of reverence and respect. But next, make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true and then show them that it is. Or to go all the way back to Scripture again, 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. In all three of these statements, the assumption is that an experience precedes the conversation. That people need to see the what before they hear the why. To come back to the skiing metaphor, I'm glad I was given some abstract instruction beforehand, but the simple truth of the matter is people don't start trying to ski in the first place because you explain the principles to them. They start trying to ski because they see someone doing it and they want to have it themselves. We live in a world that is becoming ever deeper entrenched in intellectual wisdom, or at least what we think is intellectual wisdom. But we are called to communicate a deeper kind of wisdom to the world, an incarnational wisdom. Incarnational wisdom cannot be tweeted, 
and it cannot be posted on Instagram. It lives in the real world, fully embodied with real people in real community, in real relationships. The best form of evangelism that you can offer the world is your own transformation, your own discipleship, your own hopefulness and non-anxious presence in an anxious world. And the best form of evangelism that we as a community can offer the world is simply a cross-shaped community that people can witness and experience full of love and care and compassion put on display in real life with real people every day, not in the abstract, but in the real world with dirt under our fingernails. Our job is less to tell and more to show. And once we have shown, the telling gets much, much easier. May we have the courage to live an incarnational faith and wisdom. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this whole endeavor that we have undertaken in our lives is about incarnation. It's not simply about ideas. It's not about doctrines. It's not about wisdom in the abstract sense. It's about a wisdom that's lived in the body, incarnationally, in community. Father God, we are called to make disciples of all nations, but that first and foremost must begin with us being disciples ourselves, showing what it is before we try telling what it is. Help us to figure out how to do that better each and every day. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.